Well, hello there. Welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast, where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barraclough, coming at you from week five in this latest lockdown in Sydney. I hope wherever you are, you're staying safe and healthy, preferably not in lockdown. But I'll tell you what lockdowns are good for. Lovely long chats with authors about their novels. This month, I talked with Meredith Jaffe about her latest novel, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, and I think I've set a new record at an hour 20. You might need an extra long walk for this one, listeners. In this episode, Meredith takes us on the journey from first draft through to structural and copy edits and how she finally got to the finished novel. She talks about writing multiple points of view with an ensemble cast of characters, the concept of head hopping, the unusual drafting process she used for her next novel, and how she seeds backstory throughout the narrative. And she uses a terrific example from the novel to illustrate the point. Now, remember, there can be spoilers in this podcast. So if you prefer not to know anything about a book before you've read it, off you go, have a read, then come back and have a listen after you've read it. Thank you to all the listeners who sent questions in for Meredith this month. I'm pretty sure she answered all of them. And a big thanks too to the gorgeous people who've left reviews on Apple Podcasts. I loved one from Megs of Redfern, who said that even though she's not a writer, the interviews help her understand a little more about the books she loves and why she loves them, which is brilliant. I thought it would be mostly writers listening to this podcast, but to know that it's, you know, enriching the reading experience for readers as well is really lovely. So thank you, Megs. A little bit about Meredith. Meredith Jaffe is the author of three novels for adults, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, The Making of Christina and The Fence. She also wrote Horse Warrior, which is the first in a children's series and was published in 2019. She's the festival director of Storyfest, held on the New South Wales South Coast and regularly facilitates at other writers' festivals and author events. Previously, she wrote a weekly literary column for the online women's magazine, The Hoopla. Her feature articles, reviews and opinion pieces have also appeared in The Guardian Australia, The Huffington Post and Mamma Mia. Right, let's go to the interview. Meredith Jaffe, so nice to see your face. <laughs> from, from a distance, just like the song. <laughs> well, we've gone from speaking multiple times a day in the lead up to Storyfest to, well, I don't actually think we've talked for a week. It's outrageous. It does feel really weird when you're used to basically living in each other's slipstream for months yes. and then suddenly going, I feel like I'm missing a limb. <laughs> <laughs> so not only were you crazy busy with organising the Writers' Festival, but you also, in the middle of it all, clever you, launched a book. So, I launched a book and wrote a book, don't forget. <laughs> and wrote a book, that's right. You had a deadline for a new book as well, which, you know, the launch of The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, which we're talking about today, involved many radio interviews and podcasts and Facebook Lives and in-person events, many of which I was involved with as well, just because we were in each other's pockets during that time. Have you caught your breath yet? Not really. It's quite interesting. Every book has its own... Um, 
I guess, its own trajectory. And it's been fascinating. So I have um, every Thursday morning, I get emails from my agent telling me my sales figures. And so that then ends up in a flurry of email conversations around, you know, what else can we do to promote the book and, you know, those kind of things. And which is lovely. I'm incredibly grateful that they're, you know, paying attention. And then since the book's been doing so well on the Kindle version, it's been like, it's really it's really difficult to to not distract yourself by going, what number is it now? Or um, the Goodreads reviews are going up, I would say, exponentially, but not really. Like, you know, I'm not like I've got 26,000 reviews or anything, but but it feels like it, you know, compared to, to my earlier books. So it's sort of a bit of a distraction. And there's still, um, you know, with every book you go through a sort of, well, if you're fortunate with if, with a big publisher, you tend to go through a six to eight week period where you're the darling, where they're busy promoting your book to all and sundry, and then it sort of tapers off because they need to move on to new projects. But um, you learn that with each book that's published, that you know not to feel personally slighted that you've gone from being the bestie in the inner circle to being like, and you are who? Um, <laughs> it's not really like that. I suppose it depends on your personality if it feels like that. Um, and so then it becomes uh, your responsibility really in this day and age to then keep spruiking the book as much as possible. So uh, I guess the direct answer to your question is no, it hasn't really tapered off, but only because we're now sort of trying to be creative about keeping the book on the on the sort of word of mouth treadmill, you know, trying to keep the book in people's sphere. And if, you, if you're on Facebook, for instance, and you, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm on the ABC book club. So it's, I find... I find it really fascinating as a sort of um, if for other authors too, I think it's really worthwhile having a look at what everyone's talking about, not necessarily whether they like the book or don't like the book because, you know, everyone's different. We all you know, resonate. But you take a book that's doing extraordinarily well, like the Dictionary of Lost Words. It's not homogenous, but they are talking about it. Mm. And, you know, it's book's been out since March. You know, poor old Pip, that book came out March 2020, bang slap in the middle of our first COVID crisis. Um, she's not on social media at all, like, you know, a few authors are like that, like Meg Mason. So she's got no social. She basically had written that book off and yet look where it is. You know, yeah. it's out, up there with Trent Dalton and The Streaming Skies and it's selling like hotcakes and people are still talking about it. So mm. it's this time around with this book, I've been much more conscious, which you will appreciate because you're the marketing guru who's been kicking me up the bum for years, <laughs> that I've been much more conscious of like being active with the marketing and publicity. So there's still stuff going on, you know, there's still yeah. events, even with the current lockdown, there's still some events going on. A few have been cancelled, but I've been really lucky uh, as we were with Storyfest of been, in, been launched in that period where there was still live stuff. I've been very proud of you. You've uh, really embraced the socials and social media has become a lot more prominent these days than when even your last two books came out. So, you know, we're all online. Well, what else do you do in lockdown? You know, like we're all baking and stitching and reading and like yes. basically doing, you know, I, I guess you could call it self-care. Yeah. But, I mean, writers typically do connect on social media because we live in our little solitary bunker. You know, where we disappear under the doona and write, you know, not the, not the ScoMo kind of doona, the, the writing doona, the cocoon of comfort um, to write and create. 
And so, you know, social media is a really good way of popping our head above the parapet and seeing what's going on in other people's lives. And and be it someone like Maya Linnell, who's got her beautiful lamb, lamb spam, as she calls it at the moment, or her <laughs> beautiful dahlias, or, you know, Kylie Ladd with her whip smart commentary. Um, there's always someone saying something. And I think Instagram's kind of a natural home for writers because it's a very positive space and we all support each other and we and it's nice to know what everyone else is up to, you know. So now <laughs> let's have a little chat about the dressmakers of Yarandara. It's going gangbusters. Congratulations, by the way. I don't know how many reprints it's up to now, but I know it's also in the charts on Amazon and Apple. Oh, I did know about Apple. Yeah, there you I go. Know. <laughs> Not an Apple user. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so congratulations. Now I know because we've been friends for a long time and you've very kindly brought me along on your writing journey that your first novel, which became your second released novel, took around 10 years to write. Your first novel, which was the second novel you wrote, took about 28 days to write. Where did this one fall in the in that yeah, massive this, time frame? <laughs> in the happy sweet spot of, of four years, I think, yes. is, is the projection. So it, it is funny, isn't it? Like it's so common that first novels take forever. And I suppose it's because it's your apprenticeship. The self-doubt is never <laughs> Or perhaps it's not. Perhaps some people have hubris and think their first novel is an astonishing masterpiece, which the world has just been waiting for, which just doesn't know it. But I think for most of us, our first novel is definitely our apprenticeship. So it takes it takes time because you're figuring out how to do stuff. Like you might be lucky enough to be intuitive enough to know that it's not working. Um, but you don't necessarily know how to fix it. I think there's, that's the first, the iterations of the first novel. And also because you're sneaking it in between your inverted commas real life, you know, um, no one's, I don't know about you, but everyone's like, oh, how's the novel going? And when mm. you go, oh, it's still going, and they look at you like, you're never going to finish this, are you? And so you're not proven, you know, at that point. I can remember with Christina, you know, making the spag bowl for the for the, the you know little the rag, rug rats whilst thinking about what I was going to write the next day or you know you're sitting in the car at soccer training or whatever and you're kind of you might be jotting down some thoughts about it so yeah and also let's be fair I did throw out Christina and rewrote it so um, that was that was going to add time as well I heard um, Meg Mason talk about that yes. recently with Sorrow and Bliss and she sometimes the only way to rewrite the novel is to start with a blank page mm. um then with the fence, so they made the decision to publish them the other way around, uh, and they gave me a deadline. And you know, like when you're when you're a baby author, you're kind of like you'd say it's a very it's almost like a Faustian pact getting your first contract. You'll sign anything to get published. And, and so when they say to you, oh, and can you have this novel to us by X date? In this case, it was the 1st of November. See how it's seared in my brain. Um, you go, yeah, sure, no worries. And then you just kind of figure out how to do that. So The Fence was a novel that had been sitting in my brain, had been percolating while I was doing Christina. So it wasn't like it just I had to start with a blank sheet of paper and I had no idea what it was going to be. I had pitched it and it 
ended up being a two-book contract. So it, I, I, when I say I wrote it in 28 days, I did. I took a day off to prepare for an interview with Kate Grenville for the City of Sydney Library Tour, and I can't remember what the other day off was for. <laughs> but other than that, it was 28 days for Go To Woe. I literally handed it in the day I signed the contract with the publisher. It was also the day we exchanged contracts on the house that we now live in. So it was a big day. Yeah, yeah, so it was a very big day. But so because I'd already, this is kind of like a backstory. Sorry, it's the long, it's the long and winding road. So when I, by the time we were going through the process, so we'd moved down to the country. The fence was coming out. It was all very new and exciting and and slightly vulnerable because you just have no idea what's going on really, Mm. you know, with being published. and I kind of felt like I needed to write the next novel before the fence came out so that if it bombed, my entire confidence would not be shattered and I would at least have a draft of another novel sitting there that I could work on. And I had told my then publisher that I had this idea for this novel about Derek and he's in prison and he's going to make his daughter's wedding dress. And she went, sounds brilliant, go and write it. So I went and wrote it. And the first draft took about, uh, I think I did it in six weeks. Mm. So sort of in between 28 days and nine years, (laughs) (laughs) it took six weeks to write that first draft. But before people go, oh, my Lord, you know, I could never do that. Hang on a minute. Let's be real. I I draft quickly and and edit slowly. So um, that was just iteration number one of that book. Um, but so so the time I wrote it, that draft to publication is about four years. So we've had a few questions from some other writers who've jumped on Instagram and they are all very interested in this first draft to publication journey. So Maya Linnell said she'd like to know what state the novel was in before you submitted it to your publisher and what type of edits ensued. And also um, Penelope Janu has asked a similar question about the first draft and how it differed from the from the earlier ones. So can you tell us a little bit about that drafting process and what the next steps were in that process in terms of editing through to the final publication? Okay. So you start off with what you think is a brilliant idea. So in this case, I was interviewing Esther Freud. I'd read this article she wrote on, in The Guardian about fine cell work and my initial reaction to that was, what if you're a guy in jail who wanted to make his daughter's wedding dress? Completely unrelated to the material per se. But that's great, but how do you then put eighty to 100,000 words around that idea? And let's obviously throw into the mix that it's a bloke's perspective, it's in a, an environment I know nothing about, um, you know, we're very caught up these days about whose story is it to tell um, and that, that brings its own complications in the writing as well. Um, so there was that idea and I knew, instinctively I knew that I needed to have uh, some subplots that would hang around that, that would feed on the main plot. Um, so that was another kind of thing that I had to really think about. And I tried to because I didn't really want to take nine years per novel and I kind of appreciated that the fence might have been a bit of a fluke. I was also conscious about trying to plan a bit more instead of pants it. And so um, I had a, I did an Excel spreadsheet and I had my three main characters or a three, what I thought was three main characters at the time. And I knew that 
I had to sort of structure the novel so that their points of view were threaded through it. And then I actually found that really constraining. It didn't really work for me. And and I was also really – so I, I tend to be a person um, a bit like Natasha Lester where I write – first and then I go back and research my holes um, and I do agree that you can you can over research a novel like it might give you and I will say that knowing in my defense that I researched the bejesus out of prison life but you can research yourself to a point where you are too caught up in the factual elements of the story and not enough about the story shall yeah. we say um, anyway but I, but so I, I, I kind of because I felt so uncomfortable creating this prison world that I knew nothing about. And at the time I was really struggling to find a way into a prison apart from the obvious, which is to commit a crime. Um, <laughs> I didn't really want to go to prison that badly. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of angst going on, shall we say. Mm. Then when I finally finished it, and I can't remember, I think it might have only been like a year later, then when I'd done another edit and I'd played with it and I'd done it and I didn't know what to do with it. It was I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't working. I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And my agent then sent it to uh, my publisher, HarperCollins, and Kathy uh, Hassel, Kathy, who's wonderful, she sent me back um, – a manuscript assessment, effectively, of a structural report, a structural edit report of everything that she wanted changed about it, and it was a lot. Um, and she wanted these characters elevated and blah, 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 blah. And I was a bit deflated by that, as you might recall. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, I can't do this. I just can't do this. Lots of negative self-talk, but I did it. Um, short version, <laughs> the Reader's Digest version is I did it. By this time, I was completely, completely lacking in confidence, had no idea, still had no idea when this novel was working. It was still, there was so many, there was so much going on on the page and it was just like, oh, my God, I've just created a rat's nest for myself. Off it went to HarperCollins again. No contract at all this time. I should point out there is no contract. By this time, Anna Valdinger, who's my publisher, was back from maternity leave. We had a conversation that went for about an hour on the phone about, and I wrote about a page of notes. And as anyone who who was living around to me at the time would know that basically the message was more heart, more humour. And I'd written that at the end of my notes with my conversation with Anna with an exclamation marks and lots of underlining and then stormed and stomped around the house going, I don't know, what do you mean more heart, more humour? What more can I do? I can't do this. I'm not that kind of writer. Tra -la -la -la. And, you know, and she'd also, bless her, let it slip at the time that she really quite liked a title, didn't like my working title, Every Man's Wedding Dress, and um, she wanted to go with something more like, you know the dressmaker's sewing circle type thing and I was like oh my god yuck 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 <laughs> you know I don't write those kind of books um and I basically had a massive hissy fit oh stuff it I'll just write something else and but you know it was completely like yeah not very grown up about it for about you know a week <laughs> and, then, and then went hang on a minute the time it's going to take me to write another book would be the same amount of time it would take me to have a bash at doing what Anna's asked me to do. And if I write another book, it's going to be like ages and ages. What was the whole bloody point of trying to write a book that was published in less than nine years if I just abandoned this one? So I basically told myself to suck it up, princess, and sat down and, and wrote it again. Now, 
as I should point out at this point in time, all of this is going on while it also was recovering from a, a massive head injury, which is another story. So my brain wasn't working very well and I could only write for about 10 to 15 minutes at a time before I'd need like a massive big break um, and then go back to it. So then I wrote it again and then I still didn't trust myself. Like I still was like, you know, trying to channel my inner Marion keys and write this kind of, you know, you know, more heart, more humour kind of book. And I sent it off to a mutual friend of ours, Pamela Cook, and said, I just, I don't know, I can't see the wood for the trees. Is this ready to submit? Thinking if I don't get a contract now, I'm just going to, I don't know, go and lock myself in a, in a, a small dark room and <laughs> not come out for months. And um, Pamela was like, don't be such a bloody idiot, just send it. So I did. And the long story is very, very quickly, it was all fine. So mm-hmm. so to answer Penelope and May's question, when it got to that point where I got a contract, which was September in 2020, it didn't need a structural edit, as you would hope. <laughs> it went straight to copy edit. So, so it had a very – I had expected, as most writers, published writers would normally expect, if you hand it in, if you get a contract in September, it's going to be a published the following September, which is perfectly fine by me. That's in the lead-up to Christmas, blah blah I was not expecting to get a contract that would publish it for Mother's Day. So I was like, oh, wow, that's um, tight, Um, even with the fact that I didn't have to do another structural edit. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so by the time I got the contract, it was copy and proofing. But there there was still a fair bit to do in the copy edit. It was sort of a quasi-copy structural, but, yeah. So, well, I'm very glad you sucked it up, Princess, because look at the result. Going gangbusters. Everyone's loving it. Excellent reviews on Goodreads and so on. Um, Heart and humour. It's easy to say, hard to do, right? Oh, my God. How hard (laughs) is it to do? Like, it's like, you know, what it reminds me of is like, um, so I used to do ballet for years and years and years and you'd go to see the Australian ballet perform and they'd be pirouetting across the stage and there'd be you know, a few few plies and arabesques and whatever. And obviously the job of a ballerina is to make it look effortless, you know, in the same way that the bloke that catches her and tosses her in the air and catches her again and lightly puts her back on her feet and it's all supposed to be, you know, as if it's just, you know, a toss in the breeze, a dandelion seed. And as we all know, their toes are bleeding. You know, they, they practice for hours a day. They don't you know they let's face it they don't eat properly because they're all skinny as um and and that's the best analogy i can come up up with for more heart more humor it's Mm. bloody hard Mm. it's really um i'd love to have a conversation with someone like jessica detman about it because she's a very funny woman as we know Mm. on insta but um in the same way that um, I think you're talking to Nikki Gamel in the last podcast about the page turner, like how to write a page turner is really, really difficult to keep people reading and you really do need to think about the beats per page rather than just the scene or even the novel or whatever. The, the arc, we talk about the arc and it sounds really fluid, um, but to make it look fluid is the challenge. It's actually not fluid. You've got to actually sit down on every single page. And I think the best example of that for me would be my scenes in the Backtackers sewing room when I'm actually sewing a lot of material, pardon the pun, sewing a lot of material <laughs> into those scenes around what's going to happen next to to keep it fresh, to make people think, oh, hang on a minute, like they're not just going to make this dress, something's going to go wrong and other mm. factors are going to influence the story. But equally those scenes are also fantastic for humour and heart. Um, mm. But, yeah, it is actually 
how do you take taking something that's really serious and then make and elevating it to a point where it feels digestible, even if you are hitting people around the head and shoulders around um uh, you know, an issue like literacy, for instance. Yes, yes. I think a really good example is in the Backtackers, there's a guy called Mick and he's a really big, beefy character. I can't remember what he – do we ever find out what Mick did to get into prison? Yeah, um, he broke up a brawl at the pub and uh, killed people in the process, which was a bit a bit unfortunate because he was the bouncer. Yes, exactly. Um but we, we love Mick and I think when one of, the, one of the first times we're introduced to him, Jane is bringing out all these new sewing kits, etc. and he goes for one with his big, beefy, arthritic knuckles, kind of grabs it out and says, oh, you know, I'll take this one. Um, and the reason that he likes to do this really fine needlework is because it's good for his arthritis. <laughs> mm. And you can just, you know, see this guy, you know, he's this big, burly, beefy guy, but it provides this beautiful opportunity for that heart and that humour done in a really understated way. Like it's not slap you about the face funny, but it's just, oh, this guy with his big chunky knuckles doing this fine needlepoint. You can just picture it and it's a beautiful sort of pathos. I think, mm, I think my girlfriend Sue, who was running the art program at Long Bay Jail for 20-odd years, she she read the novel as one of an early reader to sort of make sure I hadn't made sure I was sort of accurate about prison life. And she, mm. so she would have these men in the art room at Long Bay Jail in what used to be the laundry. This is this magnificent old building with those massive big Georgian pitch, picture window type things and so beautiful space. Um, and she would spend all day with these guys and, and that was what it was like. You know, she said it was so accurate that it was this the place that they escaped to yes. away from the jail talk, away from potential violence, having to be constantly on guard for their, for their safety or for opportunity and, and to be able to just immerse themselves in something that was, could, they could, couldn't physically escape their circumstances, mm. but they could emotively, mentally escape their circumstances. And so that allowed them to be themselves. And I think that was kind of what the backtackers allowed me to do, was to kind of show their humanity. Yeah, yes, I wasn't, I never ever said that they hadn't committed terrible crimes. Mm. And interestingly, my friend Sue, so in, in fine cell work, the English equivalent the volunteers often said that they never knew what crimes these guys had committed, that they were teaching, stitching. Whereas my girlfriend Sue was saying that, oh, no, she knew exactly what they'd done. So she would be standing face to face with a, with a murderer who had, you know, a palette knife in his hand or those etching knives and stuff like that. <laughs> and like yes. perfectly comfortable. And she's a little woman. Like she's not like big <laughs> and burly like the bloke. She was like, so I really feel you should be doing this with your lino cut, you know, <laughs> as he's waving a potentially lethal tool in front of her face. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, I, I just, I wanted also to move away from the stereotypes. I think a lot of the yes. problem with dramas, like like we grew up on Prisoner or, you know, Wentworth and Orange is the New Black and all that stuff, or even most of your cop dramas, you know, the prisoners are painted in a certain way yeah. as if they are the sum total of who they are is their crime. Mm. And that not mm. that that they can be other people. I watched um, a special on Johnny Cash, and they are talking about his um, performances at Folsom Prison, which is the maximum security jail in California, in uh, San Francisco. And and these guys were 
cheering and, you know, having a wonderful, fabulous time with Johnny Cash, who they felt empathised with their scenario, you know, their situation, because he'd been one of them, which was kind of drawing a bit of a long bow. But but they were showing that they were human, that, you know, that they too could appreciate the music and the humour and the songs and, and the commentary. Like they weren't, they're not prisoners as a separate entity to men in this mm. scenario. So I really mm. think that the Backtackers gave me the opportunity to show them as people, not as prisoners. So showing heart, how do you personally do that? Is that something that comes naturally to you as you're writing the characters? You'll, you'll dream up a scene where a particular character is getting to show their humanity or a gentler side to them that might be mismatched to their physicality or how do you go about doing that with your characters, developing that heart, helping to develop the reader's empathy towards that character? Um, the honest truth is, is that I don't write very nice characters to start with. I actually work the other way around. So, <laughs> so I actually create people at their worst. Um, they're less attractive. I'm always fascinated within myself as well, I might add, about our less kind thoughts or our less kind actions and um, and how they reveal character. Mm-hmm. So I'm the, probably my weakness, if you like, is that I then need to go back and add the heart, add the heart and humour. <laughs> I need to then go back and kind of soften the edges a bit. Now, obviously, the character in this novel that leaps to mind that that is less true of is Lorraine, um, Derek's ex-wife. Mm. But she's an interesting one in and of herself because I um, had gone on to Chat 10, Look 3, onto the Facebook page and sort of said, give me your wedding stories. I want to hear all the, I want to hear the dirt. I want to hear the goss. And it became really clear from the stories that came back to me that the the incarnation of Lorraine at that point in time was not dark enough. Right, mother of the bride. (laughs) The mother of the bride was not awful, nowhere near awful enough. And so I just went to town on her and turned her into the Lorraine we now know and love. And if they ever do make a film of it, God, what a great character to play. Um, (laughs) um, so, So because that's what people told me had happened in their real life wedding. So I felt it was kind of, even though I worried that it verged on caricature, I did feel that in a way, in terms of the heart and humour, that we kind of needed a comic relief. And we also needed a, a reason to barrack for Derek as not being the loser in the scenario, that God, if I was married to her, dot, dot, dot. Um, so yeah. there was an element of that as well as yeah. the, you know, sort of like the the mother of the bride gone feral. And for all, any of us who've been married, um, at least the first time, um, mothers do have a bit of a tendency to to kind of, try and um, influence the wedding to, to be the bits of their wedding that it wasn't quite good enough, you know. <laughs> it was sort of, so there was, there, I, I'm not going to dob my own mother in on that account, but let's just say that yeah. um, there is a scene in the novel which is taken from my my, my real life. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, well, we can only guess at that. Now, speaking of Lorraine, the addition of women into this novel was something that came later in the drafting process, wasn't it? Well, they were there. They just didn't have as much of a, a voice. voice. Yeah. 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 So tell us about that. Was that something that Kathy or Anna suggested and were you resistant to that initially? Like, tell us about how 
the the voice of Jane and Debbie and Lorraine came into the story? I think the simple answer would be to just say yes to that, but I think it's more complicated. Mm. I think the other element to this story has to be that I, in one of my other hats that I wear is I facilitate at writers' festivals and have done for many, many years. I love it. It's like this is like what you're doing here on a podcast is I get to do on stage lots Mm. of times and I love it. And one of those people was Rosalie Hamm who wrote The Dressmaker. Um, amongst other things. And I was interviewing her about her then current novel, The Year of the Flood, which is a great read. And it must have been coinciding with a sort of crisis point in the writing for me of this book Um, because I I said to her off stage, actually, it was nothing to do with the conversation that we're having. I said, like, I just can't get how you have so many characters and there's so much going on and they're all really alive on the page. They're not just there to to be the the Greek chorus kind of thing. And I said, how do you do that? Like, and she said, and she sort of looked at me like I was a weirdo. It was like, and like, well, that's just how I see the world. It's just how, you know, that's how it is. You know, there's always, you know, subplots and people saying one thing and doing another and all this kind of thing. And if you've read anyone who's read The Dressmaker or, in fact, any of um, uh, Summer at Mount Hope is another great one where um, any, any of Rosalie's work, they are ensemble pieces. And I said, but, you know, I can't remember. She didn't actually give me any advice about it. She just was like, that's how I see the world and there's always something else going on. And that's where I sort of took a leap of faith and... Um, so sort of egged on, as it were, by Kathy and Anna by saying, we want to see the girls, more of the girls to balance it out. Um, I also went, well, really, if I'm going to add them in, I may as well add in a whole lot of other characters. So it's sort of, and, and it seemed like every time I added more people into the scene, Anna would go, oh, but what about, we need to get more of a feel that there's more people in the room. So <laughs> even right at the end of the editorial process, I was adding in Frank and Vince and Jared, and I was like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> And I'm, it's kind of a relief, though, that so many readers have said to me, it, you know, there's a lot of going, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of people, but I always felt like I knew who, I had tabs on everyone. So that's a relief because it was just getting bigger than Ben-Hur, really. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. So the girls, the girls got elevated. Structurally, of course, it makes sense because you wanted to, to offset the prison scenes. And, and Jane's a kind of, I guess, a bit of an exception to that because originally Jane was just in the prison scenes, in the backtacker mm. scenes, and then we didn't know what she did outside of jail. And then through that editorial process, it's like, no, we need to see her outside of jail. And so it it was a good thing to do because then it allowed me to to – Take, take the political elements of the story, which is epitomised by the battle between Nicholas Fisher and Susanna for the role of mayor, um, and make that a subplot that was more humanised and less yes. about the fact that there is that sort of element of... Because initially in the early drafts, I was really... <laughs> this is the sociology degree at play, um, really interested in that battle between do you go to prison as punishment for your crimes or to be punished for your crimes. Mm. And that whole scenario, that question was going on in real life in Britain with within the Tory party when every time they replaced the Minister for Justice, I can't remember if that's what they call them there, but the Minister for Justice, 
there would be this interplay where like, you know, the new guy would come in and go, oh, well, so-and-so went native, didn't he? Because there was, it was all about rehabilitation and that's not what it's about. It's about punishment and take away all these privileges and tra-la-la-la-la. And so I was really interested in that debate that was going on in the UK and I wanted to write about it. And so by Jane suddenly having a life outside of the, the jail allowed me to then to bring Susanna into it and then uh, set up the scenario with Nick Fisher so that we could talk about that without banging people over the head with it because, as we all know, we hate being lectured to. I think from memory, just reading that very first draft of uh, this novel, we heard a lot about that issue through Doc, wasn't it? Because he was reading papers and listening to the radio. So we were getting it sort of all secondhand. So the introduction of Jane and Susanna allowed you to effectively show the issues rather than just hearing it sort of secondhand. I thought that was great because that issue suddenly came to life in the novel and and had a lot more meaning. Jane also is a fantastic vehicle as well, isn't she? Because there's that whole, how are we going to make this dress? We don't know what size Debbie is. And so effectively there's a bit of a bridge there as well, wasn't there? Without any spoilers, but just, you know, bringing her in was, I think, a genius move. Thank you. Um, I think also uh, I was just really interested in, in the kind of these women that do volunteer in these jails, you know, in the in fine cell work um, particularly because it's sort of the gentle art of sewing kind of idea doesn't kind of sit with the gritty prisoner. I mean, of course, the novel, the whole tension of the novel would never work if I set it in a women's prison. And funny enough, I had a chaplain write to me the other day who she works, she works in a women's prison. And she wrote to me to say that she had accidentally, I don't know how she did this, but she accidentally bought two copies of the book. So she gifted one to the ladies that she works with in the prison. And she said, I think you're going to love this. And they were commenting that they loved the fact that it was the bloke sewing and not the women sewing. And I was also very relieved just quietly that she said how authentic it was, like that to, to real life prison experience, because that is a question that comes up a lot with readers. It's like how, because it's so different to what they expect a prison story to be like, yeah. that they then, of course, naturally, of course, then go, well, it can't be real. Like this is just because it's in a novel. And, and whereas um, and I think one of the characters does say this, and I use the Harry Potter novel to make this point that it's like a perverse form of boarding school. Um, and every bit of research that I've done and people that I've spoken to, that is on the whole what it is like. It's like a perverse kind of boarding school or, or in my experience, very similar to being stuck in hospital for a really long time. <laughs> it's like this is a constantly interrupted and constant routine and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, um, so, that, so Jane allows – so having Jane coming – coming and going does allow you to sort of put, get some relief from the prison scenes and, and to see her perspective on what the work that she's doing. But it also solves the plot problems along with Maloney of how do you make the wedding dress? You needed to have someone in the room who actually knew how to make the dress. So that goes to a couple of questions we got from Petronella McGovern. Thank you, Petronella, for your questions. Always so supportive of the podcast. Thank you. Um, she's asking, how did you ensure that the prisoners didn't become stereotypical? And were you nervous setting the book in a place you couldn't actually visit? You, she says you created such a good sense of it. Now, I know we've talked 
briefly about the research that you did, but can you go into a little bit more detail about that research and how you managed to capture the sense of place and the characters without those stereotypical elements? So the, the stereotypical side of it was probably the easiest side of it because I had absolute, I set out with a very firm vision that I would not set it in that kind of, I didn't, I wasn't writing a crime novel. Um, I was writing, I, I did want to write a feel-good story. I just <laughs> didn't realise how hard it was going to be. Um, and I'm also, stereotypes always are fascinating, aren't they? Because they give you something to rub against. Mm. And so I wanted to rub against the reader's stereotypes as much as my own stereotypes of prison. So there was an element of that. And if you think about it logically, prison can't be <laughs> all of the stuff that we see in Wentworth or Prisoner or whatever. You know, it cannot no, – no one would even work in a prison if it was like that all the time. Mm. Like, um, And I did also another event I did for the book was at, um, in Goulburn Library and it was filled – the room was filled with women who worked <laughs> – in the maximum security jail at Goldman, thought, oh, this is going to be a tough crowd. You know, oh, <laughs> I'm so going to get caned for this novel. Um, I went into it with good humour, but and I and amazingly sold a lot of books at that event. And the general feeling that I've had from people who do work in the system is, and this also came from the um, the head of media and communications for the Department um, of Correctional Services. He was saying that they're really grateful that there's a novel out there that actually shows the more humanised and and sort of more mundane, if you like, version of the prison story. So I guess to answer the first part of that question second is how did I do that? Well, you know, the blithe answer is I exercise my imagination. But the truth is I read and there's a, there's a very short version of my reading at the back of the book just for people who are interested to see how I got there. It, I read everything I could get my hands on. I read So You're Going to Prison or You Have a Partner in Prison. I read um, correctional handbooks. I read judicial papers. And this is the same process, Petronella, by the way, that I use for Christina as well So um, because I didn't know from firsthand what the trial experience would be like in a sexual assault trial, I then had to do a similar thing. And, and you can't read, um, for good reasons, you cannot read trial transcripts of child sexual assault cases because of the victim's privacy. But what you can read is the judicial and the reform papers around change in the prison system. So in a similar way, I applied a similar process to the dressmakers of Yarradara prison and just researched the bejesus out of it. And so, for instance, the doc as the librarian. Um, there's an academic, Australian academic, who did research into prison libraries and she wrote a PhD thesis on it. So I read the thesis. Um, I wanted to know what that ate in prison. There was a group out of Wollongong Uni who did research into uh, nutrition and food, so food tech kind of uh, thesis on uh, prisons, pre predominantly in New South Wales and Queensland. They literally listed what they got. Summer, there's a summer and winter menu. This is what they got for breakfast. This is what they got for dinner. Um, so I could actually seed the novel with authentic detail um, and and seed some of the humour, going back to the humour. And um, at one point, the editor wanted to take out so many food references. And, and I kind of think food is a really important part of our lives. Even if we don't like cooking, for instance, we all eat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, I imagine, you know, and it's it, a la the hospital slash boarding school experience, you have no choice in what you eat. 
<laughs> no. So, it, it, well, to the extent, as Derek says, you know, he either toasts the bread and, and braves the, the cue to the toast or he just eats it with butter on it and margarine, uh, margarine and, and marmalade type thing. Um, so I thought the food became a really nice way of reminding us that they were in a routine and that they did not have choices without banging the reader over the head about it. And hence the um, – although I have said that the hummus – with gherkin and it sounded disgusting and I have had a couple of people tell me it's delicious <laughs> I'm not going to go there I'm not going to I'm not going to find that out for myself <laughs> I'm just going to go with the fact it sounds disgusting and just leave it there <laughs> well you can only do so much primary research let's face it Meredith <laughs> <laughs> so there was a whole so I, I just read and like for instance what are they allowed to keep in their cells and how do they keep it in their cells all that stuff you know uh, what can you buy at the buy-up um, you know, the canteen is in our layman's terms. So all that stuff, I just had to kind of create a sense of, and prison chat rooms are really good as well. There's a whole lot of prisoners who are quite happy to answer questions. I didn't actually have to ask any because people already asked them. So you read about what is your routine? What time do you get up? What time do you go to bed? What yes. movies are you allowed to watch? You know, tra-la-la, everything. So going back to an earlier point where I think you can over-research a novel, I, I, the caveat to that is if you're world building, which is effectively what I was doing, you do need to be very comfortable that you know how that world works. Marcus Zusak, who you're very familiar with, he's the patron of Storyfest, <laughs> your mate. Um, I remember him talking about the importance of details and, and being really specific with details because that's what can really set writing apart and, and research goes to that, doesn't it? Yes, with that caveat of don't go don't down to the rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think what I love about Marcus's writing is that he'll take you right down into the microcosm of a scene or a feeling and then take you back out again. And I think it's a real talent to time that. Um, Louise Sotel, uh, who used to be a commissioning editor at Alan and Unwin, I remember her once on Facebook saying, oh, for the love of God, people, it's not all show, no tell. Yes. You have to balance the show and the tell because you do you need the minutiae of the character having a shower, for instance? Maybe if you're writing Psycho, but for the rest of us, the, you know, do we care that they're clean? Not really. You know, <laughs> it's sort of, is, is that the most germane thing I'm going to take from this scene? So it, it is that element of going, when do I need to know the microcosm of mm. the of the moment and when do I, when is less more as well? Yes. When is pulling back? Um then going to give the reader more is what is not said. And it, I come from a drama background, so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of empty space on stage, both physically and also metaphorically. The pause, the silence, is a really important thing to develop in the writing, as well as to imagine what's not said. And sometimes too, I find that in dialogue, particularly with people, is like, don't tell me how they're feeling when they say it. Show me how they're feeling when they say it, you know, and, and, and allowing the character to have a voice, their own voice. And how does that principle apply to backstory for you? Is it the same <laughs> Your kind favorite of thing? topic. <laughs> it's my favorite topic. Everybody knows it. I just want to know how to do it. I need all the help I can get. But it, it is that same theory, isn't it? I think that it's really important to make the reader work for their pleasure. So if you gift the reader every damn thing they need to know in the novel, 
then why, where is the work? Where is their imagination? Where are the holes for their imagination to filter through? Um, so I, as anyone else, in, as, as you know well, that I tend to finish novels before the end, um, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. But um, I'm very big on the writer using their reading muscle. Uh, sorry, the reader using their reader, reading muscle. And so I like to leave space. And if you look at a scene, for me, if you look at a scene like the very first time we see Debbie's when she's at the bridal boutique with Tash Tory. Hashtag shedding for the wedding. Hashtag shedding for the wedding. Um, and that is a scene where I had to, Debbie doesn't have a lot of scenes in the novel. So I needed the scene to work really hard for us to show who Debbie was and show that she had a bit of a dad in her, you know, that she was a bit of a, like, you know, she was she, she knew exactly what her mother was like. She didn't really have any interested people at Tash Tory and she knew what she wanted out of her wedding. But equally, she was in a vulnerable position, literally, because she was half naked <laughs> um, and, and on a pedestal, literally, but also because she felt that she wasn't in control. So I think it's just really important to give the reader enough that they can paint that picture. Like, do I, no one needs me to tell them what Tash Tory's like because Tash Tory is so alive on the page by what she does. You know, the hashtag shedding for the wedding, the, the, the let me show you my wedding photos from a place that was unpronounceable, which I actually found in a wedding magazine as perfect honeymoon locations. So that is a word I have to use in a book. I can't even pronounce it myself. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important to go, am I, with backstory, how much do they need to know right now for this scene to work versus is there a better place I can put it later on? But I also think it's a backstory can be a real trap because when we meet people in everyday life, we don't know their backstory. We only are relating to them in the moment. We might be then thinking, there's clearly a bit of backstory there, given how they overreacted to X, Y, Z. But we don't know what the backstory is. So I think it's a when you're writing a scene, you need to go, how is this character behaving? I know the backstory. I know why they've just gone off about this thing. Um but the other person in the scene doesn't. Or if the other person in the scene does, if they're used to that person going off about X, Y, Z, then they, they're they going to react in a certain way, aren't they? Like we all do it. If, if we know that the moment something's said on the news, our husband is going to say X, Y, Z, because he always says X, Y, Z. Um, so you need to remember that the reader's smart enough to figure that out. That's So the backstory only has to be there enough it's like a judicious sprinkling of spices, I suppose. And they, because we all know that backstory takes you out of the pace, takes you out of the present. Now, where it works, of course, is where you can say that there's a trigger point. And this is also going to get a bit messy because I write deep third person. So when I'm, my, na my narrative voice is my character voice. So when someone says, oh, waffles, Belgian waffles, for instance, to Derek, he remembers when they took Debbie for, for breakfast when she was 12 and she never had a Belgian waffle. That's different because you're not actually taking them out of the story that is part of the story and then you bring them back into the story when someone bumps into him and he goes, oh, sorry, and he's back in the moment kind of stuff. But even writing that scene, it was way too long to start with and it just kept cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. What does the reader actually need to know? Why is it here? So the why is it here is because we get to see Derek's relationship with Debbie as it was we get to see his relationship with 
Lorraine, we get to see her value system versus his value system. He was happy just to have a bit of toast. She's like, oh, for God's sake, we're not going out for a fancy breakfast for her birthday and you're having bloody toast you can have that at home and then so he orders the full country breakfast and then thinks there'll be leftovers he can take home to the dog but the reader sees on the page she's fat enough as it is poor thing now that of course also applies to Lorraine that line they wanted to cut I was no way because that shows us Derek's sense of humour as well, you know. So I guess the short version is if you're going to have backstory, make it work really hard to justify why it's there on the page and keep it short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep it short, keep it short and make it relevant to the current action. Yeah, because he's going down to breakfast and so he's not going to get Belgian ruffles. So that's the perfect time for a reminisce about breakfast. That he's had in the past that reflect his character, Deb's character, Lorraine's character. Yes, it works very hard, that scene. And, and the other thing to remember is that, like, the other characters can tell you the character's backstory. So if you look at Parker, Derek is the one who tells us he's a country boy and that's his obsession with the weather pages and knowing what the temperature's going to be and when the rain's coming. So you get a sense of Parker as the person he was before he became a criminal that ended up in jail, mm. just through one sentence from, yeah. from Derek. So that's the other thing when I say keep it brief, that's an example of keeping it brief, is only keep as much of it in the story that doesn't take the reader any place that you don't want them to go. Now, we talked before about Rosalie Ham, and this is an ensemble piece, as we've talked about. Can we talk a little bit about the issue of head-hopping Meredith? <laughs> <laughs> so, like backstory, some people have got a real thing about So, I reckon backstory, head-hopping, prologues, I reckon, are the three big things that people get very heated about. Yes. Ink so will be spilled over this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how head hopping came into your orbit in terms of this novel and what your thoughts are on it. Okay, so backstory here is that it didn't come into my head with this novel. It actually came into my head with The Fence. I'd structured The Fence that we had Gwen's point of view one chapter and Frankie's point of view another chapter. And then in the editorial process, my um, commissioning publisher said, that she wanted snippets of Eric's point of view and Brandy's point of view sprinkled in within those chapters and a couple of other places where she wanted to see the non-narrative voice have a voice kind of thing because that's what we're really talking about. So I had kind of done a little bit of it with the fence and I've always had a thing as a reader. I, I, when you Occasionally when you read a novel and you suddenly realise you've head hopped and you go, well, hang on, how did that happen? <laughs> and you go back and you read it and go, that was seamless. I didn't even notice that you did that. I mean, yeah, so I guess it's like everything else. It's like there's head hopping of the, you know, elevated, you know, experienced practitioner kind of head hopping. And then there's the really clumsy stuff where you're constantly changing perspective and you don't know what the hell's going on. Obviously, we all want to be the expert kind of head hopper if we're going to use it. And that's the thing. If you're going to do backstory, if you're going to do head hopping, if you're going to do prologues, make sure you can justify why it's on the page. So I already had a little bit of experience with this. And as I was building this ensemble piece, it just – so I, as I said I come from an acting background. So I see a scene from every character's perspective because – when you act, that's what you do. You already know what's going to happen, just like a writer does, mostly, and you need to know where everyone needs to be on stage. And also the other thing is who's off stage. So the audience needs to know 
Michelle's not currently on stage, but I know she's out the back slaughtering a pig for dinner, you know, whatever. Because <laughs> I didn't want to say you're in the kitchen. It's such a cliche. Um, so it's, there's that element of always understanding where everyone is in the room and where they need to be and also what they need to be doing next. So you, you've got all this stuff going on in your head anyway. It then becomes a matter of how do I best get from A to B to C and is that character the person to tell me that? And often the answer is no. And it becomes really awkward if you're trying to stick to Derek's point of view when naturally, you know, if he said something stupid, like for instance, you know, I thought I'd make a peacock throw cushions. Jane is obviously going to react to that. Like that is the dumbest idea ever, you know, perhaps not in such polite terms. If I stay in Derek's head, I lose the comedy of that moment because Derek thinks he's talking perfect sense. Derek thinks it's brilliant. Of course she's going to want to throw cushions just like his mum had. He's not realising how much that says about talking about backstory, how much that says about his relationship with his mother. And Mm. I think the backstory of of Derek with his mother is something that I'm quite proud of, how I wrote that backstory because it was a lot more written in earlier drafts about what what happened between him and Steve and him and his dad and him and his mum, which is not in the novel and it shouldn't be in the novel. Um, but it's but I wrote it anyway, mm. kind of thing. So so I think that you know, and when when Jane and Maloney are in cahoots, for instance, if I only saw that from Maloney's point of view or Jane's point of view, I would again lose the magic of the the reader using their using their creative muscle to understand that the lie in action, you know, that this is, that, that this dress is being propelled forward because of a lie. Um, and, and so the, I think for all of those kinds of reasons, the dramatic tension in the scene, the comedy in the scene, the pacing of the scene um, and how much I needed the reader to move, because a lot happens in those back chapters, how much I needed the reader to move forward was served by the head hopping. Well, to me it was seamless. When this first, I don't even know how this came up. How did this whole thing about head hopping come up did somebody mention it or somebody mentioned that it was a very bad thing to do but I can't remember who it was I was like oh okay (laughs) and then when I read this iteration I was like to me it was seamless and I loved this style of storytelling I loved being able to get their reactions and I actually couldn't see the seams so well done you (laughs) but it is a lot of work to do that like those chapters to 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 get the head hopping seat to make it seamless and visit like the ballet dancer with her you know arabesque etc is lots of rewriting you know like again and again and again and again until you really and 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 the initial version of that was a lot more in Derek's head so Kathy Hassel at the time was like, get it on the page, get it out of his head. And that was kind of also how the ensemble started to develop because for Derek to get it out of his head and onto the page, he needed people to react with. So that was mm. also part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little bit before about, or you mentioned the fence and <laughs> you mentioned that you like to cut novels off. I remember reading one of the first drafts of The Fence and emailing you and saying well where's the last chapter and you said what do you mean that is the last chapter and I said no you cannot finish I I want more is that (laughs) something that you've resisted in the past you don't like to tie things in a neat bow but what's the balance because nobody really wants to have the bow neatly tied but 
you do want to have a sense of satisfaction at the end. Is that something that you feel like you've had to learn? And how have you applied that to your to your writing? It's certainly something I've had to learn. <laughs> like I think there's another three chapters at the end of The Dressmakers that were never there. Um, and all, all this more heart, more humour and all that stuff. But I think um, because I love books as a reader, I love books where... I can't pick up another book after I finish them. I, I'm still living with these characters. I'm still thinking about well, what happened after that or that was the wrong thing they did at the end, oh, no, or whatever the thing <laughs> is. You know, I love I love all that kind of – I'm so heavily – again, this this reader muscle that I keep talking about, I love my, my reader muscle being worked and I like mm. – to be able to, I'm so engrossed. If, if I'm so engrossed in the story that I'm still thinking about them days later, going, "Well, what happened?" Then I think that's a big tick for the writer um, that I'm so in, I'm so invested in what happens with those characters. Um, and I guess from a reader's point of view, the number of people. No, strangely enough, no one's ever asked me what happened to Christina after that novel. But with the fence and dressmakers, um, people have always, "Oh, it should be a sequel. It should be a sequel. What happens next?" Um, because books are not life. They are a fragment of our life. You know, going back to backstory, that's part of the problem, I think, for people is we've just dived into these characters' lives for however long the novel lasts for, and then we've dived out again. I mean, a few novels are obviously the epic novels that go from cradle to grave of across dynasties, perhaps not so, but for most novels we're only in there in their world for a short period of time. So, you know, as we know, Cinderella marriages, marries the prince. How did it turn out? Eh, who knows? The novel, the, the story finished there. So it is that element, I think, where I kind of like to leave people going, well, what do you think happened next? And I know what people think happened next with the dressmakers because they're telling me, they're going, well, Joey obviously has to go and do his course and Derek has to get out and then, you know, he needs a romance and all this kind of stuff. So I like that. That to me is very satisfying. Mm. Um, so I guess going back to your point, how do you know how much you tie it up versus how you allow space for people to project into those characters' lives? It's it's tricky. Um, I wish I could give you a perfect answer. <laughs> You know, you know me well enough to have to, oh, my God, I've got to tie this up with a neat bow. Oh, kill me now. <laughs> so, you know, so so the challenge for me then became when Debbie goes to see her dad at the end, sorry for the spoiler if you haven't read it, um, is I wanted to make you cry. If I was going to have to tie it up with a neat bow, sorry, Yes. More heart, well, more humour. Well, there was going to be no bloody humour at the end of this one. I was going to have you in tears, floods of tears. So that that is also like when you say tied up neatly, it doesn't have to be obviously a squeaky yeah. clean, you know, Brady Bunch kind of ending. It, yeah. it just needs to be satisfying, I suppose. And I think it was the same with the fence. I wanted to know a little bit more than what you gave me <laughs> in the first draft, and then you <laughs> delivered. You delivered that with the with the final novel and I had a tear and I didn't have that when I read the first draft because I was like oh I don't have your imagination I can't imagine what happens to to Frankie and Gwen I've invested in these characters and I really want you to tell me how this ends if you had have dropped off those last three chapters you wouldn't have got all these readers telling you that they'd had a little cry at the end hmm Mm. Although it's good to say that a lot of people have also said that the dressmakers is like a big warm hug, which is, is nice too. <laughs> it is. It really is. You've you definitely took the brief of heart and humour and delivered and then some. But it's, it, I think what's really telling for writers is if 
Because humour is a really personal thing too. And what I think is hysterically funny, um, you may not. That's just life, isn't it? You know, it's why I, I used to be a recruiter and we always used to say to people, do not make jokes in interviews because, <laughs> um, because it can fall incredibly flat or worse. Um, but I think it's the same with crying. Is that, so the, what's really telling for me is when I, I cried writing that scene, as you well know, because I was at your place when I wrote the final scene the first time. Um, which ended up not being quite the final scene, but anyway, one of the scenes. And my editor and I, who've read it how many times? Like, you know, five, six, seven times, still cry at the same point <laughs> in the novel. And we know what's happening next. It's ridiculous. And I've, there's another novel that's coming out. Well, I think it's just come out this, this last week or so, When Things Are Alive, They Hum, mm. um, by Hannah Bett. It's a debut novel. And, oh, my God, I sobbed through the last three chapters. And I wrote to her publisher, who's a mate of mine, and I said, I sobbed through the last three chapters. It was so good. And she went, oh, music to my ears. And it is. It's like if you can evoke, if you can get people to invest so much in your characters, and that's the heart and humour thing, um, that they care what happened to them at the end and you can elicit even a lump in the throat will do me I don't have to doesn't have to be full-on Kleenex um then you've done your job yeah yeah I'm just going to skip back to a question from Juliet Field which will take us back a little bit to structural editing but she'd just love to know what's involved in a structural edit generally how you go about it and how long it typically takes (laughs) oh lordy well, first of all, you have to go cry, curl up in a ball, scream, rant, rave, call your publisher every name under the sun. Um, <laughs> this, uh, seriously, I think there are two schools. From what I can gather, there are two schools of authors. Um, the school that love the structural edit and think, oh, thank God my editors pulled this apart and told me everything that's wrong with it so I can fix it and just going to roll up my sleeves and get into it. That's my Judith Lucy version. (laughs) Uh, And then there's another school, which I used to think it was a school of one, and it was like this dirty secret that I kept. But I've since discovered a couple of very famous best-selling Australian authors who are friends of mine um, feel exactly the same way, which is like I hate it. I hate, 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 hate the structural edit. And it's not because I'm precious about my killing my darlings because I'm actually not precious. Too many years writing a, a, a column every week for one of the toughest editors in the business cures you of any hatred of being edited. Um, it's more that when something simple like, oh, could you just elevate this character to be like a main character in the novel? And you're like, yeah, sure, just like that. You know, I don't know her backstory. I don't know what she did, you know, like blah, blah, blah. So it can feel very overwhelming to be given a structural edit, particularly if you're, depending on, I suppose, on your relationship with your actual publisher, whether they kind of, you know, soften you up first and kind of give you the jam on the sandwich and go, oh, such a great story. I loved it. So much is working with this novel, except this. And then there's the five pages of all the stuff that's wrong with it. I suppose it's also that um, you have to admit where you've been lazy, you know, when you've handed the work in and you've gone, ah, oh, damn it, I thought I'd got away with that, that they right. wouldn't notice that I hadn't done that hard yakka there and they bloody well picked me up on it. So there's, there's always an element of that. And I have to say in all fairness to the entire editing world, thank goodness that they do pick you up on your laziness because we all have moments where we go, oh, the plane took off the end, you know, <laughs> um, where you kind of have to be forced back to do the, the heavy lifting. And they also, you know, and also sometimes that's because you 
don't know yourself how that thing needs to be resolved. So you've just kind of, you know, zhuzhued over it, hoping that no one would notice that you've got no clue. So, yeah, I think the structural edit's hard. I find it hard because it's the moment of truth where it confronts you about your inadequacies. The inadequacy of the story that you've told, it's probably the first real time for most of us that someone with who you trust, someone that you respect, has actually come back and told you the, the, the unvarnished truth about your opus and it ain't always pretty. So it's, it's very, it can be... And it's just a shitload of work, to be blunt, you know? Like, it's not, like, I know I've got friends going through it at the moment and we all, like, yeah, there's a secret yeah. society of authors who message each other of support privately about, yeah, you know, I know exactly how you feel because you're not supposed to admit that it sucks, you know, that it's really hard. I mean, I know, I know you interviewed Kylie Ladd. I can't remember which novel it was she handed in that they didn't do a structural edit. I'm like, yeah, good. I'm glad it happened to you once. <laughs> Never happened to me, Kylie lad. Um, so yes, it's not the norm. That's not not that's not the norm. I think even she admitted that is not normal. Although I will say this, so in Kylie's defence, that the way she writes would would make you much more likely to get that yes. to happen. Like the, you know, the most of us to do our messy drafts and and fix it up in the editorial. But I do know that there are writers who will not move on like Kylie until that sentence is perfect. I I could never write like that, and God bless her that she can. Mm. Um, But uh, the way I write, there's no way in hell a publisher would come back and say, that's perfect, then we'll just keep moving on. But, But I do get told a lot that my work is very, very polished, so I do care. Like when I hand a novel in, I do care that, it's been line edited and that it is as good as I can possibly get my homework to be before I hand it in. And But it's like when you're at uni and you hand in the essay because it's due at 9 o'clock, it has to be in the box by 9 o'clock on Friday morning, you hand it in because you got to hand it in. Would you rewrite that essay? Absolutely. Even if you got a 95% on it, you'd still go, yeah, I should have done that. I, I think one of your secret weapons in this novel was Microsoft Catherine, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I discovered I discovered Microsoft Catherine. I can't remember what the bloke's name was, but anyway, because you know how people say you should read your work aloud. Have you tried reading 100,000 words out loud? <laughs> Hello. Um, but Microsoft Catherine will do it for you. So I could lie on the couch and listen to Microsoft Catherine read my novel and then sh- sh- you get used to her voice because it is a bit obviously computery, um, but you do pick up a lot. You don't pick up everything, but you do pick up a lot. But I don't. I very rarely read stuff out loud as I'm writing because I have quite a strong voice in my head, so I don't really need to, but I do forensically read everything again and again and again. It's just a way of getting some distance from the novel. Like I I will often download my novel onto my Kindle and just to have a different format to read it in. Um, another way is just to change the font. Um, I print it out. I read it that way. You know, I just got to sometimes just kind of see it in a different format and you definitely need to print it out though because it's amazing how many mistakes pop out at you on the page that you don't see when you're reading on a screen it's a waste of paper but mm. I recycle mine so how much do you give in to editorial suggestions I think that's a question that new writers in particular think oh do I have to just say yes to everything how do you diplomatically push back on editorial suggestions and even on 
cover suggestions? Well, I think cover suggestions is a slightly different question. Um, Cover design is basically not not your court, I suppose, unless you are and patch it and you just get to say this will be the cover of the Dutch house globally and end of story and they go, oh, okay. Um, The the rest of us mere humans uh, don't get to have much say in our cover except usually in a sigh of relief when they open the email saying, here's your cover suggestion, I hope you love it as much as we do, which is kind of how they all turn up and you go, oh, kill me now. Um, But you do have to have a lot of clout to get a major cover change, I think, um, is the short answer. Editorial suggestions, I think, have evolved. Um, I remember reading uh, probably in The Guardian or something how, and this is before Maggie O'Farrell became Maggie O'Farrell, capital M, um, with Hamnet. They were talking about how writers will follow editors around to different publishing houses and that the big houses don't have the clout that they used to have because then that's why they go down the imprint path where they have lots of different imprints so they can basically make them small businesses that can be more nimble and respond to what's around. Anyway, in the context of that, they're using Maggie O'Farrell as an example of how she went from a very big publishing house to a very small publishing house to stay with her editor. I thought that was really interesting at the time. As I'm now up to my fourth novel published, fifth novel written, I cannot really understand why she would have done that. And the thing is, if you can have a relationship of trust and respect between you and your editor, then you will more likely capitulate to their suggestions than if you don't have a relationship of trust and respect. And I think that would be true of pretty much any relationship in life. So how much do you push back? I think as a beginner novelist, it is a Faustian pact that you will do anything to get published and this may not be true of all writers. That should be, you know, a disclaimer there. But um, as you evolve as a writer, I suppose, or, or your confidence in your particular story, maybe, um, I ceded a lot less ground. Despite what it may sound like from the structural edit comments, uh, there was some stuff that I really went, no, no, never going to happen in editorial suggestion. How do you do that? Well, after you kind of privately have your stamping your feet you know, temper tantrum, you write a very polite email and <laughs> suggest that perhaps that won't be changed. And if you have an agent, you you make sure that you definitely talk to your agent and go, this is making me terribly unhappy for these reasons. They've, of course, read your novel, so they, they know what your novel's about and they can then tell you if you need to suck it up, princess, or whether you do actually have an argument to make. I certainly wouldn't recommend picking up the phone and, and sharing your feelings before you process them. <laughs> but that would be true of all life, isn't it? Don't send the email, sleep on yeah, it overnight. So true. We got a question from a listener, Books by Jules. Jules, you are such a beautiful supporter, not only of this podcast, but of Meredith's writing and of Storyfest. Thank you. She's a local Meredith. I know. She never comes and says hello. Jules, when you're listening to this, I keep saying to you, come and say hello. I'm not that scary. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, you need to come and say hello. We want to meet you. Julia did ask a question about drafting, but we've already covered that. She's also interested to know more generally about your regular writing practice. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing practice, Meredith? How does your day work? So I have writing days and non-writing days. I found that works best for me. It's all very well to write a novel in 28 days, but let me tell you, that means starting at 4am and doing 12-hour shifts and working seven days a week and all that. I have no problems with working seven days a week because I love what I do. But equally, you need to refill the creative 
well. At the moment, what works best for me is I do one day a week on StoryFest, which is usually Mondays, simply because it's a very disrupted day for me with music lessons and tennis lessons. And I just find it hard to settle into the week on a Monday because I normally do have Sundays off. So I tend to, my working day, a bit like Nikki Gamble was saying last month, is that I tend to write when the kids are at school, not negotiable. I might put the dishwasher on when I go to make a cup of tea, but I generally don't prioritise anything to do with housework or boring stuff like that. I tend to write in the mornings when I'm fresh and I tend to write up until lunchtime. Then I have lunch and in the afternoon I do admin stuff or answer emails. I do keep an Excel spreadsheet because I'm a nerd and that that keeps me writing because sometimes one of the hardest things with writing is the bum glue, as Di Morrissey likes to call it, and that is keeping your bum in the seat when you don't feel like it. It's a bit like, you know, if you pack your gym gear or have it next to your bed, you will go for your morning run. Keeping active track of my word count forces me to keep writing some days and I go, oh, God, if I just wrote... 250 more words, I would actually have done better than yesterday. All right, I'll do that. And I often find too that I can struggle all morning and faff about and I can win to complain and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the last hour of my writing morning will suddenly it'll all come together and I'll scream out 2,000 words in an hour. So my writing practice, I've found benefits the less time I spend at my desk, not the more time I spend at my desk. So if I feel like I'm running out of path, I might write Tuesday, Wednesday and do something else Thursday and then write Friday, Saturday type thing. And that's kind of my preferred way, Tuesday, Wednesday, day off. Well, not when I say a day off, <laughs> day off writing. Um, and then Friday, Saturday tends to be how I write. Um, and even then I find um, I can generally put a novel together in about six weeks. That's kind of, I'm a pretty fast writer. Wow, six weeks, my God. It's discipline. Honestly, it's bum glue. It's literally sitting there and going, stop telling. You've got to shut off the little voice. Uh, I also find that I also meditate. So every day I before I start my day, I meditate. And that's a really good technique for shutting off the stupid little voice that hates you and wants to tell you what, what a loser you are and that you, who are you kidding and all those negative, whatever your personal negative mantra is. Um gets rid of it for me I tried journaling during COVID last year and I I loved it it was great fun but then I would sit down to actually do my writing and found I'd run out of steam like I just not journaling doesn't work for me um I don't even keep a notebook in my in my handbag or whatever to scribble down amazing thoughts or bits of dialogue that people do I go the moment I write it down it's gone so I can't remember, I think it was Ian McEwen, it could have been Martin Amos, but I'm pretty sure it was Ian McEwen who said, never write anything down. If it's cream, it will float to the surface. And I find I'm the same. Like, so uh, the novel I'm about to go back to editing, the the next one that's coming out next year, when I'm my mind is percolating issues in the novel, I will write post-it notes about thoughts related to the edit that I stick in a $2 scrapbook that you get at the stationery store and then I'll come back to those because then I can, when I've de- dealt with them, I could scrunch them up and throw them in the bin so they become lesser, but not not just as a general day-to-day, oh, that was a very witty repartee, I'll write that down. Or I really like the way that his cuff looked. It's like, nah. I rely on my imagination for that, rightly or wrongly. You do have a brilliant imagination and also an excellent memory, much better than mine, as we have demonstrated. (laughs) Despite the brain injury. (laughs) So 
you don't have necessarily a daily word count. You more, do more work on a weekly word count. Yeah, yeah. Roughly, I roughly work on, I like to keep the math simple. Um, I try and work on like 10 to 15,000 words a week. We'll get a novel written. Um, and I generally write in six weeks, so it's clearly more than 10,000 words a week. Um, I work, and I always work on the novel. I always work on a novel length of 100,000 words because that's really easy maths. So 100,000 divided by 10,000, yeah, that's 10 weeks. The only time it hasn't worked is the one I've just finished um, writing a couple of months ago because it didn't end up being 100,000 words. It ended up being like 117,000 words. It just felt like the never-ending story. It's like, oh, my Lord. So that goes to one of Jules's other questions, which is what you are writing now. Now, can I put a little caveat on that and say not what you're writing now but what you have just written and can we talk about the drafting process for this novel that you've just turned Mm, in we sure can so um it's not uncommon for writers to talk about wanting to keep their process fresh and challenging themselves in new ways with each book. I suppose in the spirit of that I'm, I'm in the camp that says story planning just sounds like the most boring way in the world to write a novel and I couldn't script my novel like that because what would be left, where would be the fun in the writing? So I'm definitely in that camp. And then I read an article in The Guardian uh, where Sophie Hanna, who's the UK crime writer, detailed her approach to what she calls story architecture as opposed to story planning. And that rang a bell. That made sense to me because that was about If you're going to design a house, um, you want to know where the bathroom's going to be and the staircase and all those kind of things. You don't build the house and then go, oh, yeah, the staircase to upstairs would have been good or I don't like where the bathroom is or whatever. You kind of figure all that stuff out first. And then when she framed it that way, I went, oh, yeah, because, you know, I don't want to spend nine years writing any more novels. I'm like I'm 56 if I did spent 10 years on every novel. I'm not going to write a lot more novels. I'd like to kind of be a bit snappier. Um, And I could kind of deal with story architecture better than story planning. And even she said story planning just sounds like a shopping list, doesn't it? Like I need milk, I need tomato paste, I need toilet paper. Um, Whereas story architecture sort of still kind of alludes to the creativity of that. But as we all know, if if you're a pantser, you can either go down rabbit holes in your novel or you can spend a whole lot of your writing time feeling very angst ridden by, is this working? Is this working? If I said right at the beginning that Michelle was going to do this and now she's done that and I'm going to have to go and rewrite that now because yeah, I've had a much better idea three quarters of the way through the book, all that kind of stuff. So with this new novel, I Forgive You, I wrote what, what Sophie Hanna calls a knocky draft and she calls it knocky because it's half pasta, half potato, right? So it's not a first draft, but it's not a story plan. And I thought, look, nothing to lose. I'll just, I'll just put a a knocky draft, I'll have a go, I'll see if it works. And what she does with that is she starts with the elevator pitch and then the blurb and then the setting and the characters before she then goes, and then this happened and that happened or whatever. So you're not actually writing, writing, you're just kind of writing badly, as it were. But what's interesting about this is that that elevator pitch and that blurb was put by my agent with the dressmakers and that got a two-book contract just that Mm. elevator pitch and that blurb. So clearly it worked because I sounded like I knew what I was talking about, even though I hadn't actually written the novel yet. 
So the Nohi draft took me about three months. It's not like it's a really short process, but what it allows you to do is as you have that brilliant idea three quarters of the way through, it's pretty easy to change something that's only 20,000 words long because you can just Google Michelle and then it'll take you back to chapter whatever it was and then you can go, oh, I'll just fix that in there. So and so it sort of evolves over time, over those those three months. I'd say if I was, do, if I was saying to anyone who wanted to try it, give it three to four months, don't assume it's going to be. Like I'll just wing it out in two weeks. And then I just left it because I had to go and edit, do all the edits and everything else for the dressmakers. And then I didn't come back to it again until March. And that's when I actually took my took the Noki draft and went, right, chapter one, what happens? And then fleshed it out so that as I went through, and as you've read the Noki draft, so you know that some scenes were really well fleshed out because they had obviously come to me very fully formed and other bits were like, and somehow she goes from here to here and because this needs to happen kind of, and literally in those kind of words. So then the drafting process then just is a lot less stressful because you've already done the structural hard work. You already know who all the characters are. You know how it resolves itself. It just isn't pretty. It just doesn't have any nice stuff happening in it. It's not It's not emotionally resonant or any of those kind of really important things. And so the writing process then becomes very much about layering and getting into the the whole story of it. Um, it, It's easier in the sense that it's not as angst-ridden, but it's not easier in the sense of the writing. It just takes a whole lot of layers of pressure off that you already know how it works out. So I did it that way. Yeah. I've heard Sophie talking about it on the Rights for Women podcast, actually, if anyone's Mm. interested in learning more from the horse's mouth, have a listen to Pam Cook's interview with Sophie Hanna on the Rights for Women podcast, where she talks about the gnocchi draft. Well, I I think we could probably just keep talking and talking, couldn't we? In fact, Mm. when we get together, we do just talk and talk, but there's usually champagne (laughs) involved (laughs) all night long. Um, But this is a podcast and we do need to be mindful of the time, which is ticking on. So love, thanks so much for coming on my little podcast I so appreciate it thank you so much for having me I hope people hope people enjoy and I was going to say too if people want that copy of that article from Sophie Hannah let let me know and I'll find it again and I probably saved it somewhere in my bookmarks and I can that'd be good actually I can pop it in the show notes and people can just click through to that thanks Meredith thanks Shal see ya Well, lots of great writing insights from Meredith there and quite a few specific references to Meredith's novel. So if you haven't read it, come back and have another listen afterwards. She does refer to some specific scenes in relation to seeding backstory and showing a lot about a character in a short space. So lots to learn there. I want to say a big thank you this month to Petronella McGovern, Maya Linnell, Penelope Janu, Julia Miro and Juliet Field for your questions today. Petronella Mayer and Penelope are all excellent writers themselves with quite a few novels between them, all of which are out at the moment. So if you're after some lockdown reading, please check them out. They're all terrific novels, so you really can't go wrong there. You can find out more about Meredith and her novels at her website, meredithjaffe.com, where you can also sign up for her newsletter, which is a terrific read full of book reviews, interviews she's done with other authors, what she's up to with her writing. And there's always a scrumptious recipe in there too. I think the last one was date and coconut slice, which is definitely not helping with the COVID kilos, but hey, who cares? It was delicious. 
Now, of course, you can also follow Meredith on Facebook and Instagram, where you'll find lots of great stuff if you're interested to learn a little bit more about the specific research and inspiration for dressmakers that she talked about in this episode. Now to our August book. I thought it was high time we had a bloke on the podcast and was absolutely delighted when Kyle Perry agreed to come on. Kyle's debut, The Bluffs, came out last year to great acclaim. In fact, it's just been shortlisted for Best Debut Fiction in the Ned Kelly Awards. And his latest novel, The Deep, has just been released. Now, it's perfect timing that Kyle has a book out because last year I listened to him talking about writing craft and his process. And he was so great, so articulate. I thought he'd be brilliant for this podcast and I put his name on my wish list. So when his publicist at Penguin got in touch out of the blue a few months ago, I couldn't say yes, please, fast enough. So as always, you have about three weeks to read Kyle's novel, The Deep, and pop your questions on the Writers Book Club podcast website or on the socials. You'll also find links to buy both the paperback and ebook versions of The Deep on writersbookclubpodcast.com. And yes, we're doing a giveaway, which you'll find on the Writers Book Club Instagram and Facebook accounts. So head over there to enter. The entries will close on August the 7th, which is only a few days away. Thank you so much for joining me this month. You'll find all the show notes for this episode with Meredith Jaffe, including a link to the Sophie Hanna article and the Rights for Women podcast episode with Sophie at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you'd leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Last but certainly not least, this podcast was recorded on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, and I respectfully acknowledge the elders of this country, past, present and emerging. Have a great month, everyone, and happy writing.